This is Jane Smith reporting for WASP News. We report so you don't have to decide. Now, we're live outside of Sovereign Studios, where a protest has been taking place. Uh, sir, sir, what is going on here? We're going to put an end to his godless hedonism. He's corrupting the entire planet. Uh, you must be talking about the golden stallion of the tech world, Brian Sovereign. That's right. That sex fiend of an anarchist has crossed the line. We're going to rip his triple black clothing and then him to shreds. But Brian Sovereign believes in nonviolence. We don't care. He wants to end government and wants to pervert science and technology to do it. Brian Sovereign has to be stopped. This just in. Brian Sovereign is coming out of the studio. Tech listeners said, Golden Stallion, please call it like you see it. Call it like you see it. And so the Golden Stallion is here to do just that. We've got a lot to cover this episode. Some really interesting revelations were to be had this week. And so we're going to get to them. Please stick around for HackSec because it's a really important one this week. Uh, a lot to get into. Uh, before we start off the random access, of course... Be there at Porkfest, June 27th, 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. It's on the official schedule, baby. This is going to be a, this is going to be a beauty. We're going to be doing a live sovereign tech. There's going to be audience participate, participation. We're going to be doing a Q and A. Going to have lots of great guests on, very lovely guests. And I mean, just all kinds. Of, it's going to be great. It's going to be all kinds of wild things going on. Uh, I may be live streaming it. Like I said, pay attention to social media or at zog.ninja at the Zog blog. I will update info on that if, you know, if all that uh, works very well, we'll, we'll see. I want to, I want to see how the equipment works when we get there. Uh, but it's going to be a great time and I uh, got some great people volunteering uh, on the whole matter. So do catch that because it's going to be a hell of a ride. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, uh, let's see what else we got. You know, something I, I posted on various social media, but really, uh, I've been tearing into the book complete Liberty inside out by Wes Bertrand. And, you know, 
I, I often say, look, I don't think we're ever necessarily going to achieve a completely anarchist world where, you know, everybody's an anarchist. Everybody's on board with, you know, with these principles and these ideas, uh, you know, these these wonderful, you know, you know, life affirming ideas and all that. Um, but I'll tell you, if there were a chance that that was going to be so. This book is the guide map, and I think in many ways it very much stands alone as being the guide map, uh, you know. That's a good thing for West Bertrand. <laughs> I wish more books, you know, had such a complete uh, outlook uh, and, and covered such important information. This is a very unique book. So please do uh, grab a copy of that. You can go to completeliberty.com to grab a copy of that. Uh, I've just I've been really excited, you know, reading it. Uh, and there's, there's a lot to take from it. Uh, it's really, really something. And of course, if you want to spend a little more money, <laughs> Hypercronius is out there. Uh, my very first game from Zomia Offline Games. Of course, I have a lot more uh, things coming as far as that goes. But Hypercronius is out there. You can use the code SVT. Grab it. Get the. You can get a copy of it for a, with a dollar off if you use the code SVT. Uh, and you can buy it with Bitcoin, PayPal, credit card, whatever. But it is the very first anarchist video game uh, with wide, you know, or that I really know of, like that's widely known in any way. Um, you, it will be available on Desura, and as far as I know, it will be available on Amazon Desura. Desura, it'll be coming out on the 24th. Uh, there's been a bit of a shakeup in management at Desura. I am totally aware of the situation that's going on there. Uh, but as I understand it, you know, everything's still going uh, according to plan as far as releases and all that stuff with Desura. In fact, you can go to Desura and you can search for Hypercronius and they have a very nice landing page for it. And there's a countdown for when it's going to come out on it. But that's coming out June 24th on Desura. So if you want to grab it that way. And of course, I'll be looking in for ways to, uh, you know, to get it up on, on GOG and Steam is, of course, the ultimate platform that we really want to uh, want to get it on. Because uh, that has the most eyes and the greatest amount of reach. Because the game has, you know, incredible, at least in my opinion, speaking of things that, that deliver incredible anarchist messages, uh, I think it has that. You know, whether people realize it necessarily or not, it's integral to the story. It's a big part of it, and it and it's there. So uh, I have specials that I'll be releasing because Porkfest is coming up, and I'll be, you know, there for the whole week, actually a little bit longer. Uh, so I will have specials coming out for that one of the, you know, during that time frame, because as I like to say, when the stallion goes away, the sovereignty get to play. <laughs> so just to keep up, cause I like to have daily content. And so just to keep up with that while I'm at Porkfest, I can't be blogging, uh, every day because I do blog with the Zog blog and dark info. Both of them, you know, there's content, uh, somewhere on zog.ninja. There's content every single day uh, of the week. And, you know, when I'm going to Porkfest, uh, obviously I won't really have time to do much in the way of blogging. So I want to release, however, as much content as I can while I'm out there. And so there'll be another review special about Hypercronius. Uh, got some great reviews, you know, some very honest reviews is my point. Uh, and then also I will be releasing the special about podcasting, uh, the updated special about podca podcasting that I've been asked to release. And maybe there'll be something else, but. Uh, those, those will be, will be out there. So you're going to have plenty of content if you're not at Porkfest. And, uh, then of course there'll be the live show, uh, which is, uh, I think going to be a lot of fun. So anyway, let's get into the random access. Let's do this. Uh, you know, there are people did, I did a, a kind of a game giveaway for the random access last week and a couple people got it. 
So, and I sent them, uh, one person actually asked, they said, Hey, well, could I get a copy of Hypercronius instead? And so I sent that. And then the other person, uh, I sent off a copy of Teleglitch, which was the, uh, the original game giveaway that I was going to do, but they, they did tell me where it was from. And now I get to tell you where it was from. And it was from a fantastic show that was on for like 30 years. I mean, I don't think it stopped running on PBS until 2005, but it had been running since, you know, well into the eighties, uh, maybe even before, but the computer chronicles. And this is a show, I mean, you can still watch it. Every episode's available at Internet Archive. Uh, it was archive.org at the Internet Archive. They're also all on YouTube. I mean, you can you can catch every single episode of this show. And even when you watch ones from the 80s and 90s, uh, you really learn a lot. I mean, these are master classes in the, you know, the, the, the spiral, the spiraling road that is technology. I'm not saying a downward spiral. It's an upward spiral, but it is a spiraling road. It's not necessarily cyclical, right? Uh, because you kind of recover ground, but from a higher position. <laughs> okay. Uh, just like a spiral staircase. So anyway, Computer Chronicles is a great thing to watch. Uh, I was happy to, to pay homage to it by naming, uh, you know, this segment where I just go through some, some fast stories as the random access, because that's exactly what they did back then. Uh, and of course there's some ideas that they have that aren't really like the grandest. Like they always promote that. Hey, don't copy that floppy. You know, that, that used to be a campaign because it was so easy to make copies of a, of a floppy disk. You know, in fact, I remember doing it as a kid because one of the ways they tried to solve this is on, on a three point, you know, on a 3.5 inch floppy disk, they would have a little tab that would, you know, guarantee whether or not something could be copied. Okay. This little tab that you could like flip down. And flash drives, I think, might have even had those for a little while uh, back in, you know, 10 years ago. But anyway, this little tab you could flip down and or no, you know, it had that VHS had the same idea with the tab. And the, the funny thing is, is it was so easy to solve because what they would do is, is that like when you would rent a VHS, they would remove the tab from it so that you couldn't record over uh, the tape you know, over the, the cassette and with the floppy disk, you know, they would remove the tab entirely. And that way you couldn't, uh, you know, supposedly like copy over the floppy disk. Uh, not, not to say that it like necessarily kept you from copying it. Okay. But it kept you from doing what you wanted to with the disk. But that was so simple to do is you would just like, <laughs> you would just put a piece of tape over it, over that, over this tab area, and then you could do whatever you wanted to with the disk. So yeah, th that didn't necessarily keep you from making a copy of the thing. It just made you from being able to write to it. But so, so easy to, to get over that. <laughs> anyway, just, just a memory that just popped up in my head. I didn't mean to talk about that. <laughs> I just, I hadn't thought about it in forever that you could, you know, put masking tape over these things and, and do the business. So sometimes with the, with the floppy disk, the masking tape would get stuck <laughs> in the floppy drive. Uh, anyway, so, all right, let's do this random access. And then we've got a, got a, a bit of a survival tip to talk about for our main story. Uh, Hound from Soundhound. Now, what is this? This is a new entrant into the realm of virtual assistants and voice assistants, uh, kind of like Cortana or Google Now uh, or even BlackBerry's voice assistant or, of course, Siri. And Hound really now SoundHound is, is an app that detects what song you're listening to. And it does a, it does a really good job of it. In fact, Google Now can has the same feature where you can just tap Google Now. It'll recognize that it's hearing music. And then suddenly it will, uh, you know, it, it'll listen for a minute and that'll tell you what song you're hearing. Um, Google Now's ability to do that is kind of touch and go. 
as to where Soundhound, you know, pretty much gets it, you know, 9.99 times out of 10. Uh, so Soundhound is really good at detecting very fine voice work. You know, that that's or sound work. That's that's a fact. And so they kind of came out of nowhere. Nobody saw this coming. And the reviews I've seen of it getting used is that it actually works really well. It's shockingly well. Now, it's not as deeply integrated on the Android platform uh, like Google Now is or how Siri is on the, you know, on the iOS platform. But it's there. And, you know, some are saying it does a much better job than any other system out there. Now, you can't really compare it to Cortana just now because Cortana hasn't come out uh, for Android yet or any other platform other than Windows Phone. Uh, and of course, Windows 10, um, but it, it's out there. You know, I again, this isn't daps, you know, descent, this Soundhound or Hound from Soundhound uh, are in no way interested in decentralization, anonymity, privacy or security. OK, which is what daps means. But for what it is, it sounds like it's it's largely the best at its job. Uh, again, I, I'm still interested to see how it holds up to Cortana. Um, but it's there and this it's interesting how many people from how many disparate areas are coming out with this sort of thing. Uh, a lot of people are loving Alexa. Oh, did <laughs> hello, Alexa. If you, if you have an Amazon Echo, I just turned it on. I'm sorry. Not really. I'm not sorry at all. <laughs> what the hell are you doing with one of those things? It's just a <laughs> it's it's a it's a, a, a standing, you know, microphone it's a standing receiver for the nsa <laughs> sorry uh, um but anyway some people had said that like sonos and some of these other bluetooth speaker companies uh why aren't they coming out with something like the amazon echo where it just it's all over the house and it just listens for your command and then it sends you you know feed or it speaks to you the information uh that you were looking for you know it searches the internet doesn't store anything locally really and, you know, this is kind of an interesting, this kind of leads into that where some companies that you wouldn't expect are going to get into these spaces and that their technology actually, like Sonos, would lend itself well to an Amazon Echo design, uh, that that's probably going to start happening. Now, SoundHound doesn't have the, the, the name, you know, it doesn't have the branding, really, I think, to, to warrant, you know, taking on Google Now, Cortana, or Siri. Um, but again, it, that doesn't mean it's not the best thing out there, but the best thing out there doesn't always win. Often it's always down to, uh, down to marketing. So, but one, one thing I'm going to bring up, and in fact, I talked about how I did a blog post at darkreandroid.info this week about how cyanogen mod, uh, was, or not cyanogen mod, but cyanogen Inc was going to start installing. It's called Playphone. It's a, uh, a game app store, you know, how like Google play, uh, the Google Play Store is an app store. Well, Playphone is a separate uh, app store and, you know, but it's just games. But they are going to on Cyanogen OS. And it's important to realize this. And I talked about it in the blog post I did in the article I wrote up uh, that Cyanogen OS and Cyanogen Mod, which I recommend for dark Android devices, are two different things. OK, Cyanogen OS is what comes in phones like like the one plus one. It used to come in that uh, and it comes in other phones that are like in India. Uh, but that's like the retail version. It's a little bit different than Cyanogen Mod. So so the Playphone store isn't getting preloaded into, you know, because it's, it's kind of bloatware, really. <laughs> OK, uh, but it's not getting preloaded into Cyanogen Mod. It's getting preloaded into Cyanogen OS. But the interesting thing is that I wouldn't be shocked if some company and maybe Hound, maybe Soundhound is thinking about this for Hound, uh, may want to try and bundle 
and get deeper into it, like get deeper into Cyanogen OS, have deeper integration where it can work like Google now, uh, that they may work with Cyanogen. Uh, maybe Microsoft will do it with Cortana, where they allow for a really deep integration in Cyanogen OS. Again, not Cyanogen Mod. They are two different things. Um, so there may be a place for these things uh, to go. And in fact, I don't know if we're going to get to it this week, uh, but there's been some interesting articles that have really, like a lot of people have been showing the, the statistics and the facts as to the possibility that Google, now not to say I haven't predict predicted this because I have, but that Google may lose its dominance in very short order, particularly in the ad space, which is its main source of, uh, of revenue. So that, that's something to consider that these things, even though, you know, you may think, well, you know, they can't do what Google now does, or they can't do what Siri does. So they're never going to get any, you know, get any traction. Well, they just might, they still just might. Uh, speaking of something else, getting some traction and about actually the prediction I just made that Google may not be on top in the next few years, uh, Amazon pay. This was talked about. Now, this isn't the first time you, you can guess what this is, you know, combating against or competing against, which is Apple Pay and, of course, Android Pay, all of which are, you know, uh, uh, touchless, you know, payment systems. Uh, you know, the buzzword used to be cashless payment systems. Now it's kind of it's, it's touchless. <laughs> but uh, Amazon Pay is, you know, the, Amazon did Amazon Wallet recently. And I've kind of predicted my prediction that I just mentioned was that by 2017, it's not going to be Apple versus Google, which seems to be like the, the main competition in Silicon Valley right now. It's actually going to be Amazon versus Samsung. OK, and maybe even versus Yahoo, though. Yahoo's been uh, well, that that's a conversation for another time. But that my main prediction was that it would be Amazon versus Samsung and Amazon pay you know, Amazon wallet was a failure. They canned it after a while. I don't know if that's because they were looking to go with a completely different system, which is Amazon pay, but there there's a possibility if you've, I know I've got a lot of new listeners. So if you hadn't heard about it, um, Amazon is really positioned because they're taking a lot of their older Kindles that didn't sell like their Kindle HDs and all that, all those tablets, and they're turning them into point of sale systems. Now, I'm not sure to what degree this has been rolled out yet, because it's been over a year since they started talking about it and since I started talking about it. OK, but they have the ability to really, you know, hard code their payment systems uh all over the, you know, all over the world in any retail space, in any brick and mortar retail space. And I've been kind of waiting for this to happen. And it's the reason, uh, one of the reasons that I feel Amazon will never, ever, 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 ever accept Bitcoin. It just won't happen. Uh, they have their own labs. They even have their own coin right now. It's not the same thing as Bitcoin, but still it's, it's kind of a digital currency uh, that they could implement in that way. Uh, there's a lot of pieces coming together and Amazon pay is just showing that they, cause my concern was, was that, was that with Amazon wallet, when that got canned, that they were backing off from their plan of taking over the brick and mortar space, uh, you know, at any brick and mortar store. But now with Amazon Pay coming back out, I think that it's a, it's a reality once again. Maybe they're just kind of reorganizing uh, their efforts and they're waiting for everyone else to see what everybody else is going to release because it's, it's no surprise or it's probably uh, no coincidence that they didn't announce Amazon Pay until Google announced Android Pay. And of course, Apple Pay was announced like, uh, you know, quite a few months ago. 
so that's happening. Uh, some people asked me about the Reddit situation. There was a deal where uh, some subreddits got taken down because of their their anti-feminist content or their their whatever. And uh, people were crying. Look, I, I don't. You can look into this. I'm sure everybody knows about it. I saw a lot of other anarchists slash libertarian sources or whatever, you know, bitching and moaning about it. Uh, I I don't really care because <laughs> I was shocked that people were still using Reddit. I was like, who gives a shit? I don't. I, I mean, I stopped using Reddit a long time ago. It's kind of like when Bitcoin talk. Uh, there was that big um, that big crack on the, you know, the privacy of a lot of people's like private messages and all that and on accounts on Bitcoin talk. I'm like, what? Well, People were, didn't already cancel their Bitcoin talk forum accounts like two years ago, two, three years ago. What the hell? So <laughs> the whole Reddit thing just doesn't bother me. I'm not, please, it's not an insult if you still use Reddit. I'm just saying that no shit. I mean, the writing was on the wall that Reddit was in trouble uh, a while ago. You know, actually, uh, Ryan X. Charles, you can look into his story. He went to go work for Reddit to help them out with cryptocurrencies. And, I mean, and this was a few months ago. And uh, I mean, and it's a mess. And you can hear his story. I think it was on an episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. So, you know, I, I don't know why people didn't get the message that that company was in shambles and was going to be doing bullshit ideas to get attention, because largely a lot of times these when these people do really shocking moves, OK, in, uh, you know, with with their 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 service, with their products, it's often just to garner some degree of press. And this was just to kind of revitalize Reddit, I think, because I I hope at least people have been walking away from it for years, you know, if not at least months. So anyway, no shock there. I don't even really, there's, there's no point necessarily getting into that. Uh, but let's, let's get into, oh boy, Mozilla. Uh, this week, you know, we've talked about it the past few weeks. I said, you, you know, it, I don't like what Mozilla is doing with Firefox. They're really closing in. They're not necessarily making it as open a platform as it may have once been, uh, because they're putting in closed source DRM. Uh, there's, there's a whole, they, they're doing the suggested tiles now where they are they are kind of pushing apps on you yes you can or not apps ads yes you can turn it off but essentially based upon your search history and all of it's being done locally there's no there's supposedly you know nothing getting stored um you know in on any server anywhere supposedly okay so there if there's a way to push ads correctly this would be it but i would argue there's no way to push ads correctly there are no ads on zog.ninja uh <laughs> you know well i mean yeah okay there are ways to push them correctly uh you know much like well, that's another conversation for another time. But anyway, I did not like the suggested tiles feature um, that that something about that feels really wrong. And I don't necessarily entirely trust them that they are keeping all of that in for all of that ad information clients. I have the same problem I have with uh, with Google. Uh, in fact, Google completely changed that they are no longer in control of the opt out cookie from Google ads. They've given it to the DAA or some ridiculous administration about digital advertising. Uh, you know, advertising is, is a really that that's that's a conversation for another time. So I want to I, I do want to bring that up. But anyway, Firefox is now uh, building into Firefox the pocket extension. Now, I'm not saying pocket is necessarily a bad thing. It is closed source. So that goes against the whole Firefox is completely open source or quote unquote, completely open source, uh, you know, software and web browser. It's not, it hasn't been for a little while, but, um, but pocket being put in, the thing is, is you really don't, 
I mean, you can you can get rid of it to some degree, but like the fact that it, it it's kind of this idea of tyranny of the default because it's there, people will use it instantaneously, whether they realize anything about it or not. They're just like, oh, this is a feature of the browser, so let's roll with it. Um, yeah, I don't like the fact that this is just getting hard coded into into Firefox. Uh, I don't think that's that's really cool. They were working on their own readability. Uh, software for Firefox. In fact, you can see it. It's on prominent display in the mobile, or was at least in the mobile version, in the Android version of Firefox. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't like these, these motions and these, these partnerships that, uh, that Firefox is taking on. I'm not saying Pocket's bad software. I mean, for what it does, it's, it's pretty cool. Okay. But it is closed source. It just, it goes against the, I'm only holding Mozilla up to the standards that they speak of, you know, that they promote. All right. And that's the thing is that they talk about, oh, we're open source. Oh, we're independent. And it's like, well, you're not really independent anymore. And you're not really open source anymore when you're working with Adobe, when you're working, you know, making side deals with Pocket and all these others. Okay. So, you know, I had said maybe you want to wean away from the big two. You want to wean away from, you know, from Firefox and, of course, Google Chrome. Uh, and I gave recommendations on that in recent episodes. Uh, you know, Cupzilla, even SeaMonkey, even though that's a Mozilla community thing. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's uh, IceCat. There's quite a few to choose from. And maybe you want to start considering that, you know, if you have the concern of anonymity, you know, and privacy and uh, security. Because that's the other thing, too, is when you're bringing in... You know, these third parties, especially closed source third parties, how can you trust the security of your web browser? You know, I mean, it's a real issue. Um, so anyway, uh, I'll bring up one last bit and then I do. I want to get into our main story here. Uh, Blockstream, Blockstream, which is a company that took money from the likes of Eric Schmidt and others. Uh, they got a quite a few million as some $20 million, uh, you know, seed round or whatever to develop side chains for the Bitcoin blockchain. I think Adam Back's working with them. A lot of big names in the Bitcoin space are working uh, with Blockstream. And this week they did finally release at least an alpha of one of their side chains and it's called Elements. And the purpose of Elements, this side chain, is to help with uh, confidentiality, with making, uh, suppose, as I understand it, as what I read, it's about making Bitcoin transactions a uh, little more anonymous, a little more private, a little more secure. But but it's not 100%, as I understand it. It's not like, it's not going with zero cash, which is something I fully support. Um, I still didn't hear... And I tried to find info on this and I didn't see it. And of course, the problem is, is that they can always, you know, when you find flaws in software, it's so funny because all they have to say to you is, well, it's an alpha. It's an alpha. You know, it's not the full release. Uh, so we'll solve that later. But people get excited about the alpha and it's like, well, yeah, but if this is a really central tenet of how exactly uh, I need to know that this works, uh, no, then I, I'm not going to get excited about this. And you releasing it means nothing to me. And again, the issue is, is how is this sidechain secured between the blockchain and the sidechain? Okay. At the gateway between the sidechain and the blockchain, what is the security there? And I couldn't find anything about that. And then people will just say it's an alpha. Hey, if it, like I said, if it's an alpha and it doesn't answer that very key central question, I don't give a shit about it. Okay. And those are answers that I, you know, I need answers for that before I even get excited about side chains in general. All right. 
So anyway, uh, so so that's that's out there. I was going to talk about um, insect-sized drones, but I'll, maybe I'll save that for uh, for next week because uh, those things have become a reality. Maybe we'll save it for uh, well, not yeah, yeah, next week because we'll still be doing a regular episode before the uh, the live episode from Porkfest. All right, um, I want to get into uh, why don't we break into this week's main story uh, because I've. Well, this one's kind of a kind of a survival tip, especially if you're a moviegoer. So this week, the lovely and hyper intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy and I and a friend, we all went and saw uh, it's actually Friday night, opening night. Oh, well, Thursday, I guess, in most cities is technically opening night, but <laughs> in New Hampshire, it's Friday. <laughs> OK, um, we saw Jurassic World and I will be talking about it during the climax. Uh, and I'll also be do- releasing a blog post review of it at zog.ninja at the zog blog um and so we went and caught the 3d version of this film and so that's kind of what i want to talk about is 3d technology now i've seen a lot of movies in 3d this is not a new thing for me by any stretch um in fact recently i've seen a lot of movies in 3d i saw the incredible incredible jupiter ascending uh, which was awesome, awesome flick. And I, at the theater that I saw it at the, the 3d was, it, it worked. It was fine. You know, it, it didn't really add anything to the film. Not like avatar though. I think avatar is really the only movie that, that makes a great case for 3d other than some animated films that have been released over the past few years. Um, but it worked fine. I saw guardians of the galaxy, another great film. Uh, I saw that in 3d same theater. Um, I think I saw the latest Hercules, with uh, with the rock, I saw that in 3D, you know, kind of the same th- uh, same theater there. And but we went and caught we caught it at this theater. Uh, we caught Jurassic World in 3D. We initially we really didn't want to see it in 3D, but, you know, the 2D sh- showing was was sold out. And so we're like, all right, fine, we'll catch the, the 3D. And unfortunately that we did <laughs> because, you know, as soon as the the trailers started, OK, uh, we noticed that the screen seemed to be like, like the, the picture seemed to be oversaturated, almost like the brightness was turned way, way up. And we're like, all right, maybe it's just the trailers. But then it ended up actually being the whole film where the brightness was turned way, way up. And it actually, it made like the picture fuzzy. Now I know 3d films, you know, are designed to make it fuzzy, but when you put the glasses on, it shouldn't be fuzzy anymore. No, because of the color saturation and the, and the brightness, uh, these, this movie, seeing this movie was, uh, really, really fuzzy. It was, it was not really a pleasant movie going, uh, experience. Didn't really take anything away from the film. It just took something away from the experience. And again, I'll talk about the film later. And come to find out, you know, the thing is with these 3d projectors come to find out, I did a little research on this. They are is particularly the ones made by Sony. Um, this whole 3d technology uh, is, is really a sham. Like I said, I've seen plenty of 3d movies that turned out fine, but I think the projectors that maybe a lot of these, you know, smaller house theaters, uh, you know, I don't mean like a, like a a person's house. I mean, small houses and like, you know, they're not like these massive AMC theaters or anything. Okay. These smaller house theaters, they, you know, kind of mom and pop ones, they've had these projectors. I think what's going on is that they've had these projectors, these 3D projectors and the ones from Sony in particular, these 3D projectors uh, for a long time now. And now these projectors run off of very, very honestly expensive bulbs. 
Um, and I think what's happening is, is that apparently their bulbs were the 3D pictures, as I understand it, over the years have been delivering a very dim and kind of muddy picture in the first place. OK, and as these bulbs are going bad. The theaters, what I theorize is happening is, is that the theaters are actually turning up the brightness on these films so that you can still watch the film, even though the bulb is going bad. And especially in these mom and pop theaters, like a lot of them, they can't afford, you know, to buy new bulbs. And so they're just they're, they're trying to eke out every last, you know, inch, you know, or every last, uh, uh, you know, kilowatt hour or whatever <laughs> uh, out of or bulb hour out of the um, watt hour. Right. That's yeah. Out of the, the bulb, out of the projector. Now, the thing is, is that they could just remove the 3D lens and they could just project it in 2D and just not offer it in 3D. Now, that'd be a bit of a price cut because they can, only, you know, some theaters can uh, mark up to twice the price of a movie ticket for you to go see, you know, 3D. OK, uh, they could do that. But Sony and other companies make it incredibly complex to just remove the lenses. This wasn't a problem, you know, 20, 25 years ago, uh, but it is now. You know, they make it incredibly complex to, you know, to remove the 3D lens. I mean, and there's a chance that if they did remove the 3D lens, I mean, like legal action could get taken against them. So it's a very scary prospect for them. But in the end, you know, these these, uh, you know, these theater operators are scamming you. They really are. They're scamming you. They're giving you a subpar quality picture. OK, with this and the way to notice if this is a problem, if you are getting a subpar theater experience, maybe you don't even notice it. OK, maybe the picture isn't as bad as what what we you know, what we saw when we went to go see Jurassic World. But it may not be up to what it could be. And you're laying down some good hard earned money. And the easy way to do this is if you look behind you. OK, if you look behind you in the theater, you will see there's a there's a window way up top. OK, if you're sitting in the theater, there's a window way up top and that's where the projector is projecting onto the screen. Now, if you see two beams as in, you know, a beam is just a circular light, you know, kind of shining out from it. If you see one stacked on top of the other and you can see it right on the window because it's shining through the window, it'll be one stacked on top of the other. If you see that you are getting a subpar and you're, and you're at a 3d movie, you're getting a subpar uh, experience and you may as well just go ask for your money back. Okay. And you know, I mean, I don't know if you want to explain to them, Hey, I know what's going on here. You know, you're using, you're using like older projectors, you're doing tricks with your bulbs, whatever. Um, now there's a chance that you could be going to see a 3d movie and it's a projector that has solved this problem and it'll be a single beam. But uh, largely these, you know, these, these bulbs or, you know, these, these projectors that are bad, they will have that dual beam. Okay. So if you see, if, if your movie's looking funny, um, that's, that's the deal. So, and I mean, another simple solution is to just go see 2d films. You know, like I said, I never really had a, a problem with 3d films, but maybe I didn't even notice it. And now I really noticed it because I, I'm going to, I'm just, I'm guessing, that this theater, you know, they didn't want to spend the money to have to replace the bulb. So they just tried to, to turn up the brightness as much as they can uh, because the bulb itself was dying. I mean, and that's crap, too, because actually a lot of theaters, that's another scam that theaters will pull on you. Where if a movie seems like particularly dark, that's usually them thinking, and this isn't true. It's them thinking that if they turn down 
the lumens, if they turn down or, you know, if they turn down the brightness of the bulb that, you know, that'll make the bulb last longer and they have to buy less of them. It's not true. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's just like you'd have to turn it so far down that really people would notice. And I think there'd be some clamoring about, you know, there'd be some issues uh, that, that people would raise. Um, I mean, you know, I, I expressed it to to the, the people at the theater saying, hey, you know, this really like the, the picture looks saturated. It's like the brightness has turned way up. And they're like, oh, that's how all 3D movies are. This is how it's been for a decade. I mean, they're going to they're going to feed you with some bullshit. That's a fact. OK, uh, but don't fall for it. You know, get your money back, uh, do, you know, do, do, do whatever, whatever it takes and maybe just go catch 2D films or, you know, go to another theater or whatever. Um, but keep an eye out for that. That's the thing to look for is that if you're getting what you're like, boy, this picture doesn't look right. And you're at a 3D film, look behind you, see if you have that, the stacked double beams. And if you do, yeah, it's a ship projector and, you know, and, and the theater house. And I get it. You know, it's tough economic times. I understand that. I can empathize with that. Okay, but you're you're not getting your money's worth uh, in doing it. So anyway, just a little survival tip there uh, uh, this week, <laughs> you know, if you go on a movie going experience, uh, just so you can understand. And, you know, understand that, that it is very difficult for them to just rip out the 3D lenses. They can't do that. So so everybody in a way is getting screwed. Um, but you want to make sure you're getting your, your money's worth. So anyway, I'll be back with more. This is Brian Sovereign. You're listening to Sovereign Tech. It is the year 91,001 BCE. Witness humanity's origins in Hypercronius, a classic role-playing game for Windows PCs with a story like no other game before. A liberty-oriented experience that is not to be missed. Go to zog.ninja to get your copy of Hypercronius today. Use the code SVT to get $1 off. Hypercronius, zog.ninja, code SVT. Thank you for the exclusive, Mr. Sovereign. Please, Jane. It'll be our pleasure. Tea? Oh, thank you. I must say, for an anarchist, you're not what I expected. I'll assume that's a compliment. It is. Uh, is it true what they say about you? That you're a godless hedonist, bent on ending governments and conservative values? All true. But, but... What about supporting the troops? Marriage, white picket fences, and apple pie? <laughs> Come on, Jane. I love pie. As far as everything else, it's all just here to keep you from being happy. Wouldn't you rather be traveling the world, fucking every day, not worrying about what other people think? Uh, oh, my, Mr. Sovereign. Come to think of it, I never felt like I fit into the system very well. I always wondered what it's like to be with an anarchist. Well, here's your chance to roll the roulette wheel and find out. Tech Roulette. It is time for Tech Roulette, where I cover the stories that get sent in to me through the various channels available for Sovereign Tech. And of course, you can go to SovereignTech.Ninja or ZOG.Ninja, and you can. Uh, there's the Contact Us tab there, and there's lots of ways uh, to get in touch with the show gotten a lot of great emails recently uh, that I'll be getting to, but people have been sending a lot of great stories, some of which I haven't been able to get to yet. Uh, and that's kind of what I do is I do kind of an eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and I end up with, you know, whatever I end up wanting to, uh, to talk about and, uh, or not what I want to talk about, but what ends up getting talked about that you want me to talk about. And 
Uh, this actually, the story I've got here is a write-up. It's a blog post, effectively, from Medium by uh, Hugh McGuire. And it's from April of this year. And I think it's interesting. It's something, it's kind of long, so I'm you know, going to be reading here for a little bit. Okay, but I think it has uh, perhaps a lot to say about, uh, you know, the Internet today and, and many other things. And it's, why can't we read anymore? Or can books save us from what digital does to our brains. And this has been, you know, I'll admit, Stanley and I'll here, I'll, I'll admit that this has been a debate for a while in that is digital, you know, is, is the internet making us dumber? Is it making us smarter? You know, is the long form, uh, your, the short form blog posts or like the bullet point, uh, news stories, you know, is, is that killing our attention span? All these kinds of things. Okay. And so this is addressing sort of that issue. So I want to read on here because, uh, it's got a little bit of length to it. So here we go. Last year, I read four books. The reasons for that low number are, I guess, the same as your reasons for reading fewer books than you think you should have read last year. I've been uh, finding it harder and harder to concentrate on words, sentences, paragraphs, let alone chapters. Chapters often have page after page of paragraphs. It just seems such an awful lot of words to concentrate on on their own without something else happening. And once you've finished one chapter, you have to get through another one and usually a whole bunch more before you can say finished and get to the next, the next book, the next thing, the next possibility. Next, 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 next. Still, I am an optimist. Most nights last year, I got into bed with a book, paper or ebook, and started reading, read, Ing, one word after the next, a sentence, two sentences, maybe three. And then I needed just a little something else, something to tide me over, something to scratch that little itch at the back of my mind, just a quick look at email on my iPhone to write and erase a response to a funny tweet from William Gibson to find and follow a link to a good, really good article in the New Yorker or better, the New York Review of Books, which I might have even might even read most of it if it is that good. Then email again, just to be sure. I'd read another sentence. That's four sentences. Stallion breaking in here. Uh, medium allows for some degree of artistic design with blog posts. So they kind of put in like these little quotes here and there. And so here's a quote. It says smokers who are the most optimistic about their ability to resist temptation are the most likely to relapse four months later. And over optimistic dieters are the least likely to lose weight. It takes a reading out with the, the article. It takes a long time to read a book at four sentences per day, and it's exhausting. I was usually asleep halfway through sentence number five. I've noticed this pattern of behavior for a while now, but I think last year's completed book tally was as low as it has ever been. It was dispiriting most deeply. So because my professional life revolves around books, I started uh, LibriVox. Uh, which free public domain audiobooks and Pressbooks, an online platform for making print and ebooks. And I co-edited a book about the future of books. So this is a guy that loves his books, Stallion Breaking In. I mean, this is a guy that started LibriVox. I've dedicated my life one way or another to books. I believe in them, yet I wasn't able to read them. I'm not alone. I heard an interview on the New Yorker podcast recently. The host was interviewer, interviewing writer and photographer uh, Teju Cole. Host, one of the challenges in culture now is to say, listen to a song all the way through. We're all so distracted. Are you still able to kind of give deep attention to things? Are you able to sort of engage in culture that way? Teju Cole, yes, very much so. When I heard this, I felt like hugging the host. He couldn't even listen to a song all the way through before getting distracted. Imagine what his bedside pile of books does to him. 
I also felt like hugging Teju Cole. It's people like Mr. Cole who give us hope that someone will be left to teach her children how to read books. What was true of my problems reading books, the unavoidable siren call, the digital hit of new information was true in the rest of my life as uh, the rest of my life as well. My two year old daughter dance, uh, my two year old daughter dance recital, pink tutu, cat ears on her head, along with five other two year olds in front of a crowd of 75 parents and grandparents. These little toddlers put on a show. You can imagine the rest. You've seen these videos on YouTube. Maybe I have shown you my videos. The cuteness level was extreme, a moment that defines a certain kind of parental pride. My daughter didn't even dance. She just wandered around the stage looking at the audience with eyes as wide as a two-year-old starting at a bunch at a staring at a uh, bunch of strangers. It didn't matter that she didn't dance. I was so proud. I took photos and video with my phone. And just in case I checked my email, Twitter, you never know. I find myself in these kinds of situations, often checking email or Twitter or Facebook with nothing to gain except the stress of a work-related message that I can't answer right now. In any case, it makes me feel vaguely dirty. Reading my phone with my daughter doing something wonderful right next to me, like I'm sneaking a cigarette or a crack pipe. One time I was reading uh, on my phone while my older daughter, the four-year-old, was trying to talk to me. I didn't quite hear what she had said, and in any case, I was reading an article about North Korea. She grabbed my face in her two hands, pulled me toward her, towards her, quote, look at me, she said, when I'm talking to you, end quote. She is right. I should. Spending time with friends or family, I often feel a, a soul-deep throb coming from that perfectly engineered wafer of stainless steel and glass and rare earth metals in my pocket. Touch me. Look at me. You might find something marvelous. The sickness is not limited to when I am trying to read or once-in-a-lifetime events with my daughter. At work, my concentration is constantly broken. Finishing writing an article, this one actually, answering that client's request, reviewing and commenting on the new designs, cleaning up the copy on the about page, contacting so-and-so, taxes, all these tasks critical to my livelihood get bumped more often than I should, it should admit by a quick look at Twitter for work or Facebook also for work or an article about uh, Mandelbrot sets, which just this minute I read. Email, of course, is the worst because email is where work happens. And if it's not the work you should be doing right now, it may well be work that's easier to do than what you are doing now. And that means somehow you end up doing that work instead of whatever you are supposed to be working on now. And only then do you get back to what you should have been focusing on all along. It turns out the digital devices and software are finely tuned to train us to pay attention to them, no matter what else we should be doing. The mechanism born out of uh, out by recent neuroscience studies is something like this. Uh, new information creates a rush of dopamine to the brain, a neurotransmitter that makes you feel good. The promise of new information compels your brain to seek out that dopamine rush with fMRIs. You can see the brain's pleasure centers light up with activity when new emails arrive. So every new email you get gives you a little flood of dopamine. Every little flood of dopamine reinforces your brain's memory that checking email gives a flood of dopamine. And our brains are programmed to seek out things that will give us little floods of dopamine. Further, these patterns of behavior start creating neural pathways so that they become unconscious habits. Work on something important. Brain itch. Check email. Dopamine. Refresh. Dopamine. Check Twitter. Dopamine. Back to work. Over and over. And each time the habit becomes ingrained in the actual structures of our brains. How can books compete? There's a famous study of rats wired up with electrodes on their brains. When the rats press a lever, uh, a little charge gets released in part of their brain that stimulates dopamine release, a pleasure lever. 
Given a choice between food and dopamine, they'll take the dopamine, often up to up to the point of exhaustion and starvation. They'll take dopamine over sex. Some studies see the rats pressing the dopamine lever 700 times in an hour. We do the same things with our email. Refresh, refresh. There is no beautiful universe on the other side of the email refresh button. And yet it's the call of that button that keeps pulling me out of the work I am doing, out of reading books I want to read. But why are books so important? When I think back on my life, I can define a set of books that shape me intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. Books have always been an escape, a learning experience, a savior. But beyond this, greater than this, certain books became, over time, a kind of glue that holds together my understanding of the world. I think of them as nodes of knowledge and emotion, nodes that knot together the fabric, uh, the fabric myself. Books, for me anyway, hold together who I am. Books in ways that are different to visual art, to music, to radio, to love, even force us to walk through another's thoughts one word at a time over hours and days. We share our minds for that time with the writers. There is a slowness, a forced reflection required by the medium that is unique. Books recreate someone else's thoughts inside our own minds. And maybe it is this one-to-one mapping of someone else's words on their own without external stimuli that give books their power. Books force us to let someone else's thoughts inhabit our minds completely. And I want to stay in here. I want to break in for a second. This is so, this is so true. I think that, that honestly, of all shockers, one of the things, especially in modern civilization, modern society, one of the things that can help us work on our skills of empathy for other human beings, which is so important, so important, is to get in other people's heads. And books are just this unique way of doing that. Fiction as well. Fiction. In fact, a lot of people have said that that fiction readers have much, uh, you know, that they they rate higher on empathy scales. You know, however, all that works because it is them experiencing what other people experience. Oh, book re- reading books. It, it really it is really important. Let me let me read on more. Uh, books are not just the transfers of knowledge and emotion, but a special kind of tool that flattens oneself into another that enabled the trying on of foreign ideas and emotions. The suppressing of the self is a kind of meditation, too. And while books have always been important to me on their own pre-digital merits, it started to occur to me that, quote, learning how to read books again, end quote, might also be a way to start weaning my mind away from this dopamine-soaked digital uh, detritus, this meaningless wash of digital information, which would have a double benefit. I would be reading books again, and I would get my mind back. And there are often beautiful universes to be found on the other side of the cover of a book. Oh, hell yeah, there is. <laughs> Stallion breaking into, oh, yes. There's, there's beautiful universes to be found at the end of a book. Oh, I mean, just, just picture even, you know, not even necessarily works of nonfiction, even though there's certainly that. You take something like The Ego and His, and his Own by Max Stirner. Uh, you know, the amazing way that you see the world after you read books like that. Or I mentioned the book Complete Liberty Inside Out. The amazing way you can look at your life at the, once you get to the other end of that cover. You know, or in, in fiction, you read something like Dune. You know, or the culture series by Ian Banks. I mean, all these things, you know, I mean, there's incredible ideas to be gleaned when you get to the other side of the, you know, when you get to the back cover. Universe can become beautiful. Reading on. Recent neuroscience confirms many of the things we suffer of digital overload know innately that successful multitasking is a myth. Multitasking makes us stupider. According to psychologist Glenn Wilson, the cognitive losses from multitasking are equivalent to smoking pot. Now, there's an update in this article, uh, Stallion breaking in, that 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 
that quote about it uh, equivalent to smoking pot is a bit of a farce. But regardless, I think a lot of these points still stand. This is bad for many reasons, for so many reasons reading on. It makes us less effective at work, which means either we get less done or have less time to spend doing other things or both. A little quote here, being in a situation where you are trying to concentrate on a task and an email is sitting unread in your inbox can reduce your effective IQ points by 10 points. Now, I want to address that quickly. Um, I think the whole IQ thing is largely nonsense. Um, I could talk about that another time if you want it. You can ask me about it. Brian at ZomiOfflineGames.com or you can go to the contact us page at SovereignTech.Ninja to ask about that. Reading on. It's worse than that, though, because this constant hopping from one thing to another is also exhausting. My least productive days, the days when I have spent the most time jumping between projects and emails and Twitter and whatever else, are also my most exhausting days. I used to think that my exhaustion was the cause of this lack of focus, but it turns out the opposite might be true. And so the problem, more or less, is identified. One, I cannot read books uh, because my brain has been trained to want a constant hit of dopamine, which a digital interruption will provide. And two, this digital dopamine addiction means I have trouble focusing on books, work, family, and friends. Problem identified, or most of it. There is more. We live in a golden age of television. There is no doubt the stuff being produced these days is very good, and there is a lot of it. For the past couple of years, my evening routine has been a variation on get home from work, exhausted, make sure the girls have eaten, make sure I eat, get the girls to bed, feel exhausted, turn on the computer to watch some neo-golden-age-era television, fiddle with work emails, and generally piddle around while that golden-age-era TV consumes 57% of my attention. Be bad at watching TV and bad at getting emails done. Go to bed, try to read, check email, try to read again, fall asleep. There's a little quote here. Those who read own the world, and those who watch television lose it. Werner Herzog. Reading on. I don't know if Werner Herzog is right, but I do know that I would never say about television, even the great stuff of which there is plenty, what I say about books. There are no television shows that exist as nodes holding together my understanding of the world. My relationship to television is just not the same as it is to books. Um, now, I want to I want to address that quickly. Uh, I would kind of disagree. I agree. Television largely uh, is rubbish. But, you know, there's certainly some television shows that definitely hold my worldview together. Babylon 5, Star Trek, uh, you know, all the various forms of Star Trek. Uh, and, and there's there's others. Blake seven. I mean, there's quite a few television shows, but they're not. But keep in mind, other than Star Trek, none of those are terribly popular. You know, and nobody would consider them golden age television, even though I would consider them, you know, like like the only good shows worth watching. Um, So I disagree with him to some degree on that point. But the idea of multitasking, of not being able to integrate and take on what's even happening on television uh, could be an issue, certainly. So now we'll get into some solutions. Uh, I'll read on with the article here. But, you know, actually, real quick, I just I do want to make it clear that, yeah, I agree. Certainly there's no television that can compare to you know what to any book uh they don't match up just like the book is always better than the movie well that that holds true all the way around books are also better than just about any other medium i mean maybe that's subjective opinion i don't know i I don't think that that's subjective but we can we can talk about that more in a second and so a change reading on and so starting in uh in january i started making some changes the key ones are one no more twitter facebook or article reading during the work day and that's hard number two No reading of random news articles. That's hard. 
Number three, no smartphones or computers in the bedroom. That's easy. Number four, no TV after dinner. It turns out that's easy. Number five, instead, go straight to bed and start reading a book, usually on an e-ink reader. It turns out that's easy. The shocking thing was how quickly my mind adapted to accommodate reading books again. I had expected to fight for that concentration, but I didn't have to fight. With less digital input, uh, no pre-bed TV especially, extra time, no TV again, and without a tempting digital device near at hand, there was time and space for my mind to settle into a book. What a wonderful feeling it was. I am reading books now more than I have in years. I have more energy and more focus than I've had for ages. I have not fully conquered my digital dopamine addiction, though, but it's getting there. I think reading books is helping me retrain my mind for focus. In books, it turns out, are still the same wonderful things they used to be. I can read them again. Workday email, however, remains a problem. If you have suggestions for that, please let me know. So that's that. Uh, I thought that was a really, really insightful and interesting um, write-up. And, you know, I, and coming from a guy who loves books, I mean, this is the guy that made LibriVox and, you know, a whole slew of other companies all related to getting books out, you know, helping get books out to a larger audience. And, you know, I just, okay, so years ago on Sovereign Tech, and that's the thing, if I, and I don't expect, like I said, I know I've got a lot of new listeners, I don't expect people to go back and listen to as much as one could. Like, this isn't a current event show where you, I mean, it is kind of a current event show, but it's not really. As much as, you know, you could still get something out of listening to much older episodes of Sovereign Tech. Um, you know, I will say that at one time, like within the first year of the show, I had kind of been like, yeah, okay, this idea that somehow, you know, we're getting these constant notifications and somehow that's a problem uh, in that, like somehow multitasking is a problem that somehow all that's an issue. That's bullshit. That's what I would, that's what I would say. And I've did very, you know, I, I read whole articles on the issue and I tried to debunk them and all that, but you know, I'll have to admit, and I, this isn't me new saying this. I've said this recently, you know, in recent times as well. Um, I've, I've really kind of flipped on that, that I do think, uh, that that there may be real issues. I don't know if this whole dopamine thing is is necessarily you know a huge issue. There's certainly science to back it up, but that's kind of the problem with the internet, and it actually makes the case for books. One of the problems with the internet is that I think you can find data and websites and links to back up just about any claim you care to make. That doesn't mean that it's right. And that doesn't mean also that doesn't mean just because that's so, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to make your case. Go ahead and make your case. OK, but you really could do that as to where books, books that used to take, you know, years to compile, especially like nonfiction, you know, research books that take years to compile, sometimes even decades or whatever else. And they come together. They are a cohesive piece of data and information that is so unique and it is so different from largely anything the Internet can provide. And, you know, I really I think that's something that's lost and it's lost because you don't get the time to, you know, connect the dots. You don't get the time to collect all this data and put it together because with the Internet, the, the you know, oh, this, you know, this thing happens. And so they post up about that and then it never really gets talked about again. Uh, you know, as to where if it's a book and it's about a specific subject, you know, OK, this event happens. All right, let's put that on this page. This happens. You know, let's put it on this page. And then it's one whole piece it's not 20 million websites on the Internet putting this information all over, you know, all over the place, not connected. It's one big connected piece of knowledge uh, that is a wonderful thing. Books are still so important. The Internet does not deliver 
a case. It does not deliver empiricism. It does not. It, it just doesn't. You know, now podcasts certainly can. Those are, you know, kind of, you know, I mean, they're not much different from audiobooks. You know, at least some of the ones that I that I listen to where, you know, it's very it's, it's this collection of data all put together in one spot. It's this curation. And books are really the ultimate in curation. That's something the internet hasn't really uh solved yet. Even there's there's websites that do curation. But they don't really put everything together. They don't really a lot of them don't really say how this one relates uh, to this. Some, you know, some blog posts will do that, certainly. Um, but again, it's not that that multi year, the time to really chew over the information. It's always just a reaction to the latest news story. When it's on, you know, largely on blog posts online, it's never really that, you know, this, this, this complete collection is to where when you spend years with the data, you get to think about it. You get to see what actually happened, you know, because of, uh, you know, what, what, what's the response to that data that came out there. There's so many things that you, a book right now still uniquely can do, but we can't read anymore and no one wants to read anymore. And <laughs> I complain about that all the time is that people don't want to do actual research, not just doing a Google search and, oh, I found this link to back up my claim, but to do real research. There's a benefit to having these curation things and, to, you know, finding out a, about a, a whole bunch of stuff, okay? I mean, that, that's, that's wonderful that those things exist, like a podcast or whatever else. It's, it's great that that stuff exists, but there's so few that actually even try to do that. You know, usually it's just people getting on, you know, getting in front of a microphone and flapping their yap, and there's nothing wrong with that either, but let's not, Allow that to replace our, you know, our collection uh, or our curation of knowledge or our curation maybe a, a, of great entertainment. Because that's another thing, too. I mean, when when people really like like take so long to mull over a book and to look over it, you know, like a fiction work. Uh, I think tremendous things can happen. You know, tremendous things can happen in one off spontaneity, too. Certainly there, there's a beauty in that. But in these grand epics, I mean, I think we're largely, you know, the idea that that there's going to be um, another, you know, another Lord of the Rings or another Foundation series or something, you know, some huge or like a Dune thing, you know, just a, just huge epic works in fiction. Uh, that may be something that goes away because there people will feel there's no market for it. Largely, I mean, with little groups, there'd be market for it. But then, you know, that affects you in a way that obviously if the person wants to make a living off of that, they may have to charge, you know, ridiculous amounts of money, you know, money for the book when really books uh, at this point in time are the cheapest they've ever been. And that may not be always so. Uh, but that's data. That's that's information for for another time. So I think this is key. It's really important to be able to. And, and the other thing, too, is now e-ink readers are, are fine, I think. But even like reading books on, on your smartphone, unless you're a really disciplined person against multitasking, OK, <laughs> or against distractions. Um, I think the notifications, you know, like, like it was said in this article, can really, really take you away from reading the book, but also say you do finish the book, then you just instantly, or you finish the chapter, you instantly go run off to Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and you don't get to take the time to really integrate, to really consider and ponder and process the information you just brought in from the book. You know, I mean, that there's, there's an old saying about that, that uh, reading doesn't happen until you put the book down. And what that means is, is that you don't really grasp what was said to you until, you know, you thought you'd stop and you think about it. 
it's so important. It's so, so important to do that. Uh, and I think that a lot of people are getting duped and they're, they're losing their critical thinking skills because they're either running to Google to find the answer or, you know, they're just, they're taking in so much information so fast. They can't take the time to process it. Look, it's awesome that a computer can handle so much information at a time and the human brain can too, but it's got to learn how to do that. And it can't do that. If the only reason that it's going to do these things is for a dopamine rush. You know, your brain can process tons of stuff when you're actually on the search for knowledge or, you know, whatever, you know, on the search for a good time with some fiction or whatever the case may be. Even television, there's so many wonderful things that go on that tell much about the story that's getting laid out there uh, that if you don't, because like I said, I disagree that television is somehow, you know, this this terrible thing. It's not a it's not nowhere nearly as great as books. OK, um, but there's so much to take in, so much nuance, so many little things uh, to see that you can put together that if you're, you know, half ass watching it, you're not going to grasp it. There's so many great moments yeah, I wonder, you know, television is a whole other subject that I'd love to get into at some point, because the ability to binge watch TV has really changed the landscape of how television or, you know, how, how uh, shows are made. And that's a really interesting subject. But in the end, yeah, I'm, I am. I share the concerns that people don't read anymore. And largely, it's almost like they can't. They can't handle sitting down with a book and getting past five sentences. And we're losing something in that. I'm not the only one that thinks that. Why does Jeff Bezos and Steve Jobs, why didn't they let their kids have smartphones and they made them read old-fashioned books? I wonder about that. But come to your own conclusions. I'll be back with more. Time now for 90 Seconds on Sex with Dr. Paul. Most condoms are made from latex. While it's unusual to have an allergy to latex, some people do, and it can cause redness, itching, hives, a rash, difficulty breathing, a scratchy throat, and even anaphylactic shock, which is not a desired outcome of having sex. Strangely enough, the allergy usually isn't to the latex itself, but to the impurities that are in natural latex, which is harvested from rubber trees. Because the allergy is to the impurities, condom manufacturers figured a way to make a totally pure form of latex that's never seen the inside of a rubber tree. This new material is used in low allergy condoms such as the Lifestyle Skin and the Avanti Bear. There are other condoms that don't use latex at all, like the Trojan Supra, which is made of polyurethane. Plenty of people who aren't allergic to latex prefer polyurethane condoms because they do a much better job of transferring body heat than latex does. If you are having condom-related discomfort, another thing to consider is that the irritation might be from the lubricant on the condom or from friction that results from having not enough lubrication. If you think you may have an allergy to latex, be sure to consult with a healthcare provider because it could get worse. Also, if you're allergic to latex, you've got a greater chance of being allergic to avocados, bananas, chestnuts, kiwis, and passion fruit. For more, visit 90secondsonsex.com. Oh, oh, that was... I'm speechless. Oh, if I'm leaving a reporter speechless, I must be doing things right. Oh. <gasps> Natalia, what's going on? Agent Sovereign, read this. Then meet me at the Central HQ. I have to go. What was that? And why would someone give you something on paper these days? Because it's something that is too important to risk sending digitally. As for what the message says, 
It looks like I've been doing things wrong. Important Messages. It is time for Important Messages, where I cover the emails and messages that get sent to me through the various channels available. Of course, go to SovereignTech.Ninja, see the Contact Us tab. There's a contact form there that I don't need any of your information. Uh, make sure you tell me if it's something that requires a quick response. Just let me know that that's so. Um, I will keep you anonymous unless you want me to name you. Uh, you know, but otherwise, other than a pronoun, I'm not going to say, you know, who the person is. Um, there's also, you know, like I said, uh, bit message, there's even telegram. Some people have reached me through telegram. And in fact, let's open up the, uh, let's open up this with somebody, uh, messaging me about, uh, telegram. And uh, actually they got in touch with me through, uh, SoundCloud because on SoundCloud, there's actually a messaging service there. And up until I had SovereignTech.Ninja or ZOG.Ninja, it's all the same website. Up until I had that built, um, SovereignTech.com was actually the SoundCloud page. Like that was the homepage for the show. And because it did a lot, uh, you know, it allowed for private or not secure messaging, but a degree of private messaging. Uh, it allowed for, you know, people to comment on the show. And some people still do that. And I think that's interesting. And I, sometimes I read those uh, comments um, on air. But anyway, uh, this person uh, messaged me on SoundCloud talking about Telegram, so I want to uh, I want to get into that. Uh, Dear Brian, I use Telegram, but damn, does it lack some important features. First of all, everything that isn't secret chat is wide open. I logged in from Chrome and was surprised to find my non-secret chats just sitting there. The secret chats don't have uh, forward secrecy. I told myself I would follow up if you mentioned Telegram again, and so I must. Signal, signal slash text secure is the superior technology, offering a peer-reviewed successor to OTR version two, which is off the record, uh, to quote a redditor. Please don't use tele quote. Please don't use Telegram. It's a very flawed system and is not really secure. And besides, the actual crypto code is not open source, which means it could have any kind of backdoors or flaws. Um, that we'd never know about for more info. And there's some links here. I will put those links into the show notes uh, for people to check out at SovereignTech.Ninja um, on this episode. We're on episode 129. I think that's amazing. <laughs> Please tell your listeners about the key features such as forward secrecy that Telegram, uh, you know, this is not quote unquote rock solid, as you like to say about the good tech. I still use it. I like Telebit. But I tell all my friends to install Signal slash TechSecure whenever they can move to iOS 8. Uh, Telegram is encryption uh, can end to, can happen end to end between clients, but there is no authentication. So the server can perform a man in the middle attack. Basically, their threat model is a simple trust the server. This is opposite to the philosophy you correctly espouse, the noble goal of decentralization or at least federation. OK, so I. This is this may be the thing I get emailed about the most is that I recommend people use Telegram. Um, first off, like the links that were included in this. And, and I really appreciate the listener. You know, th this is important information and I want to be corrected if I'm wrong. OK, if and when I'm wrong, I want people to tell me, hey, did you hear about this security flaw? Did you hear about this? If, absolutely. Tell me. So I love the fact, you know, that I have passionate listeners that want, you know, that want to make sure the right information is getting out there. So I thank the listener for this. Uh, that means a lot to me. So now, but the first thing I want to bring up is that it is actually completely open source. In fact, recently, the EFF updated um, their their secure messaging uh you know, like they, they did an audit, their secure messaging audit and tell the secret chats for Telegram got green check marks all across the board. OK, 
so now the language is open source now. That that wasn't true initially, but now that that is accurate. In fact, one of the links in here that that talks about it not being open source is from 2013. Um, that that has changed. Uh, certainly, I agree. I agree with two things. One, and we're going to keep listening for HackSec, okay? Because we're going to talk about uh, uh, Moxie Marlin Spikes encryption uh, with WhatsApp. But Tech Secure slash Signal. Uh, those signal is the iOS app for this tech secure is the app for Android that uses Moxie Marlin spikes, uh, encryption. Those are the best of the best that we have access to on mobile devices. I don't argue that for two seconds. That, that is absolutely true. And I, I, I like to think uh, that I make that, that case very important or, or that I make that very clear. Uh, if I don't, I'll do so better in the future. Um, telegram, the, the, one of the reasons I promote telegram, first off, I think the, the secret chat, Okay, just the secret chat alone um, that I mean, there's there's people that talk about they don't like the fact that the code or uh, yeah, the, the code that or the encryption that Telegram uses has not been vetted very well. You know, even though now it's open source and all that, it was MT Proto. That's that's what it uses. That's the encryption protocol that it uses, um, you know, that it hasn't been vetted very well. That's totally, you know, that is up to your comfort level. The thing with getting people on Telegram is that is in large part, admittedly, when you're not using the secret chats, uh, in large part has to do with I get asked the question. In fact, I released a special um, where I was on another podcast and the person said, look, is there something that's encrypted that can do a lot of what Facebook can do? But it's encrypted. OK, so again, my point with Telegram is that it gets people away from Facebook really, really important to get people away from Facebook. And we're going to talk about that more during, during HackSec. Um, could this be, you know, is this incremental and I don't like incremental motions? Yes, this could be considered incremental to be using Telegram in, as compared to going to TechSecure or whatever else. Um, but it's, it's an ease of use encryption. I think it gets people used to wanting to use encryption. Um, I would not recommend if you are doing something of a very high level of concern, yeah, maybe Telegram's not the best, maybe secret chat, but anyway, th this is something, you know, to make up your own mind on. These concerns are valid, okay, that were that were brought up by this emailer, and I really, you know, I really appreciate them. Uh, yes, TechSecure is the better of the bunch. TechSecure has its own little flaws right now. First off, it no longer, one of the beauties I liked about it was that it no longer, or it was that it could encrypt your SMS messages. That was huge. It doesn't do that anymore. Uh, the other thing is, is that I and I think this is still true it, on Android. It has a problem if you're using your Google voice number. OK, with, um, you know, with and it's merged with your Android phone, uh, it it will not authenticate. And so you can't get any further than the than the key authentication with tech secure. So that's that's a real problem. Um, but. Anyway, now TechSecure just uses your data connection to send messages and all that. And that's much better. Honestly, that's better anyway, even though the, the, the you know, encrypting the SMS messages was a really nice feature. Um, Signal for iOS is a great system. Uh, I mean, it's a beautiful app. I wish it would exist for Android. I know they said they're working on something uh, like that. But Signal is really solid and it, it almost makes the case for having an iPhone. <laughs> OK, uh, so anyway, yeah, there there are genuine concerns to be had with Telegram. I think that they're valid. Some are. I mean, it is open source now. That's that's not entirely accurate. Um, and but yes, when you are sending up, you know, if you're not using secret chat and secret chat can only be done on the device. If you're not doing secret chat, uh, it you know, it does get sent up to a server and there's a chance for a man in the middle attack uh, there. 
no doubt about it. Okay. But to wean people off of, uh, off of Facebook is a very fine thing. Okay. I mean, you know, and, and that's, that's the thing, like, this is the thing with social media. You know, I think, honestly, I think Google's going to end up buying Twitter. I think that's a reality that's going to happen, uh, in pretty short order. It may not. I could be wrong, but I think it's going to occur. Uh, there's been a lot of little things happening, you know, kind of behind the scenes with Twitter and Google integration that makes me think that that's going to be a reality and especially the way that, uh, that Google is picking apart its own social media, which is Google plus, um, I think that's going to be happening. And then what, you know, do we no longer use Twitter because it's owned by Google? Well, maybe, <laughs> you know, I don't, you know, I don't know that that's something we're going to have to explore um, when that time uh, comes. And that's the thing with Telegram is that, you know, would you stop using Twitter because Google bought it? Yeah, I think a lot of people would do that. Uh, Telegram is, again, run by a full on anarchist, the right guys. OK, the right time with the right attitude. Uh, these are people that want to literally say, fuck you to the government. That's the whole reason that they have, they have telegram. So the attitude alone is, is wonderful. Um, does that mean that you should trust it 100%? No, I wouldn't trust much of anything 100%. Uh, though there may be some new options I'll be exploring here in the future that might be a little bit closer to that. Uh, but anyway, those are fair warnings. So I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to bring that up uh, with telegram and, and decide for yourself. You know, uh, it, it's still, it, you know, if it's something, if you're looking for an alternative to get away from Facebook, to have group messaging and things like that, and please understand you, I don't think you can group message with a secret chat. I think that's only one to one. Uh, and there's Telebit, which allows you to send Bitcoin over it and all of this. Uh, you know, if you want those features, it's, it's a, it's a great alternative to get away from, uh, you know, Zuckerberg and company and maybe even social media in general. Uh, so anyway, let, let's get into some, uh, let's get into some other stuff. Uh, some people had, I got a lot of emails about, I talked about country versus city living, uh, last week. And I, you know, I was in no way. And I think most people said that they understood. I wasn't like condemning people that live in the city. Cause I'm not, I mean, it's up to you where you want to live in all this. Uh, but something interesting happened this week that I just want to bring up is that speaking of Google, uh, Google created a, you know, a sub company called sidewalk labs, which is all about improving city living because I mean, and, and pretty much the statement that they released more or less said city living sucks. <laughs> so it, it, like, like Google kind of realized, Hey, wait a minute, you know, this, this isn't good. <laughs> so, uh, so it's talking about, you know, making transportation more efficient and all, and, and all this, um, not a shock. This is actually what sidewalk labs probably is really about, uh, isn't the admission, you know, that city living, you know, necessarily can be an issue because it, it's all about what level of culture you want to, you know, interact with and all this stuff. There's nothing, I'm not, I'm not knocking living in the city. I was just presenting, you know, trying to present some evidence and some, and some thoughts in the whole matter. Okay. Uh, but sidewalk labs is probably really about test bedding Google cities because we've read it on sovereign tech. Uh, this is over a year ago where Larry Page said he wants to build or, you know, Google pretty much said they want to build cities. OK, entire literal Google cities. OK, so this is probably a test bed uh, for that operation. And those will be I think they said they want to start building them by like 2020. So uh, this whole sidewalk labs thing uh, is not a shock uh, by by any means. Um, another thing I got, I got a, an email from a listener who kind of made a, a cute quote. Uh, that said <laughs> that it was it said all things fail at scale. Savzu. 
<laughs> Savzu was a listener created uh, nickname uh, for me. Of course, it's a, re- a reference to like uh, uh, Motsu or Laosu or Sunsu, Motsu being the, the one I might appreciate the most out of those three. Uh, but anyway. Uh, and so, so that was the, all things fail at scale. And that's something I'll, you know, actually during tool of the week, I might talk about this a little bit more. Um, but th- th- I appreciate that. That's a nice quote. Now you don't want to, you know, only assist speaks in absolutes, right? A little quote, a little star Wars there, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think at scale, when you get above a certain size, I think things start to fall apart by nature, uh, by human nature. By nature itself, <laughs> by, you know, by, by all kinds of things. Um, I think things fall apart. Uh, you know, something we talked about last week, we talked about that big, you know, that government hack where some four million. And now that, like I had said, when they tell you those numbers, it's actually far worse. Okay. Uh, the numbers have come out now that it is actually far worse than 4.1 million, uh, government employees had all of their information, uh, stolen, leaked, whatever. Um, and they're blaming, you know, China for it. Uh, but everybody's admitting, including, you know, Steve Gibson on security now was even saying it and other people were saying it that, Hey, when you get something that size, you can't secure it. It's impossible to secure it. But you know, it actually, it gets worse because I also discovered that the government didn't, wasn't just not capable of securing it. I can empathize with that, but they didn't even like try. Like there's a million things they could have put into place that they never did. There was no PGP. There was no, there was nothing. Technology has been around for 20 years, you know, even 30 years, maybe (laughs) that they could have done that. They just did not do. So, yeah, I mean, you know, to say all things fail at scale, well, you know, there's caveats to that, but largely, yeah, I I think at, you know, once you get above a certain size, uh, shit starts falling apart, (laughs) you know, um, now, I, I want to do another giveaway, uh, another game giveaway again. Um, and what I want, all, all I'd like for people in the game, I'm, I'm going to give away another copy of Teleglitch. OK, uh, and what I would love to hear from people, and I'll just do any, mini money mo on this, uh, but I would love to hear, you know, what do you think of the website ZOG.Ninja? Uh, you know, do you use it much? I mean, just just give me any of your thoughts. Uh, it's really it's I really would like to know. Uh, you know, what, what you think of it so far. I mean, there's a lot of features that haven't been like the sovereign hedony. I actually changed, I originally called the sovereign quorum. I changed it to the sovereign hedony, uh, which hedony is not my idea that actually comes from the Rhysians, but anyway, but I, I just, I would love to know what you think of it. Uh, you know, give me real honest feedback. Believe me, I can take it. Uh, I have no problem with, with criticism. Bring it on. That's, that's fine too. Uh, you know, what do you think of the, perhaps the quality of the blog posts, uh, things like that? Uh, just shoot me an email and, and let me know. And I will send, you know, someone a copy uh, of Teleglitch. Maybe actually I'll send a couple people a copy of that. And then, you know, next week we'll do another game giveaway and I'll be doing a ton of giveaways at the live episode of Sovereign Tech, but, uh, I'll do another, a, a different game other than Teleglitch. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway. Yeah, uh, send send those on to me. Uh, I really would love to, you know, just just get some feedback. You can send the feedback anonymously. You can use BitMessage or you can use, um, you know, the just the the contact form there. It's very. I made it as simple as I can. You don't even have to go to your email client. You can just go to the website and, uh, you know, and just go to the contact us uh, contact us tab and send it to me. Uh, I'd love, you know, to hear any of your thoughts. And like I said, be, you know, go ahead and be brutally honest. It's totally okay. So anyway, I had other stuff I wanted to get to. Some people asked me about 9-11. Uh, I'll have to save that uh, for next week. But uh, anyway, I'll be back with more. This is Sovereign Tech. 
Are you sick of government lackeys who say you didn't build that? Are you tired of elitists like Barack Obama and Al Gore taking credit for the web while trying to take over the web? Are you disgusted by experts whose concept of the internet is that it's a series of tubes? Take back the free market of computing by encouraging software developers to adopt the BIPCOT NoGov license. The BIPCOT NoGov license allows any use or modification except by governments. Go to BIPCOT.org. That's Bravo, India, Papa, Charlie, Oscar, Tango, dot org. Jane, Natalia, come on! They're right behind us. They can't just jump off this building. No, but with a little help I called on. Hello, Agent Sovereign. The jetpacks you requested? Right on time, Elizabeth. I am not flying with one of those. I'll hold you, Jane. Relax. Tech is just a tool. It is time for Tool of the Week, where I cover a website, maybe a piece of software, maybe even a product, uh, you know, an app, whatever, uh, that I find useful, or sometimes it's something I'm concerned about. Uh, Last week, I did something I was concerned about. It was the Scramble uh, Messenger. And uh, this week, I have something. This is really kind of exciting to me. (laughs) And it's a website, but it's a website that is housing some uh, books of all things and some, you know, write-ups and, and a couple blogs and whatever. And the website is able to get, uh, you can reach it using Tor, uh, whoever this group was. And it was about 2013. I have no idea who would have come up with this stuff. I, really, I, I, I just can't imagine who would do this. Uh, but the website is anarplex.net. And it's A-N-A-R-P-L-E-X dot net. And there... Uh, I'm not going to read the, the the tour website for it, but there the they there is a book there and there are some other write ups, but there is at least one thing that I definitely recommend checking out and you can read it pretty quickly. You can read it inside of a couple hours. It's not a long it's not a long book at all. Uh, and the book is called The Second Realm. And in this, you'll you'll find really ideas that I have been espousing on Sovereign Tech for some time now. The notions of intentional communities, which it actually, there's a great term on this website called crypto tribal. Uh, I love that. <laughs> and this whole book, The Second Realm, is referencing that there's two realms. And the, the one realm is the state-run realm. And then the second realm could actually be, you know, this, this, this parallel society or this, this like, uh, like a, a building even. It doesn't even have to be a whole town, but like this one building where the people that live there just operate under completely different rules. Uh, and yes, to some degree, you know, you might have to interact with the state, you know, maybe paying some kind of land taxes or whatever, but inside of that building, uh, the state does not apply. Uh, there's a lot, you know, it's all about an intentional community. It even brings up the notion uh, that I've talked about often, Hakeem Bey's uh, temporary uh, autonomous zones or permanent autonomous zones. Uh, it brings that up. It talks about the importance of encryption. Uh, it talks about using Bitcoin, you know, digital currencies uh, and all of this. Uh, it's really a tremendous resource to read there. And 
you know, I saw it and I was just like, oh, good. This means I don't have to really write that book <laughs> you know, because it already exists. Uh, so when you go to the site in rplex.net, you'll see at the top uh, there will be it'll say like files and you can click on that and then it'll show you the files and you'll, you'll see Second Realm there. And that's really there's lots of other great stuff to read there, too. But that Second Realm book uh, is tremendous. But it does talk about the very real viability of the fact that you can. Uh, you know, you can achieve a whole ton of freedom in your lifetime right now by creating this parallel community or, you know, this parallel society, this parallel way of life, this parallel culture that that runs in, you know, again, in parallel to the state, you know, to to statism uh, worldwide and that there are ways to protect against that. Um, the fact that, you you know, you never call the cops to handle things it, it, and it lays out a lot of interesting ideas. Okay, and it, and it admits, I'm glad, it admits that it doesn't have all the ideas, that there may be better ideas and there may be, you know, this and that. That's really important because so many people in the liberty movement, <laughs> okay, or whatever phrase you want to use, so many people that are interested in having a freer world uh, will say, you know, I have the only answer in, in all of this and like just do exactly what it says here. And you know, most of the time, that's just not true. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just not. And so for the second, this book, The Second Realm, and the authors are largely anonymous, um, to admit that, you know, we, we, we're not laying out the total plan here because we can't know it all uh, is, is really, really interesting. So, you know, I, again, I, it feels great to know that this existed uh, before I even started talking about it. What's annoying, though, is that a lot? Now, I mean, there's some listeners actually at this show I know that 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 were aware of it. But what's annoying is that I haven't heard about it on any other podcast. I haven't heard much of anybody else really talking about it that has you know any kind of reach. Uh, and that's kind of depressing because I think that this is a very real solution. This is a very real path to creating you know anarchy in your lifetime for yourself and your loved ones and friends. Uh, you know, and whatever other, you know, groups you want to include. Okay. And because it also, this book also kind of admits something I've been saying for a while that we may not be able to have an entire planet, you know, an anarchist planet on earth, but we can certainly create anarchist communities that could run in parallel and, uh, and some great, this is a great read. So if you want to start reading the book, this is where to start all over again. I'll be back with more. Hey, this is Michael Dean from the Freedom Fiends Radio Show. I've been working with computer programmer Derek Slopey to create Fiend Phone. I'm using Fiend Phone right now to talk with and record one of my co-hosts in real time. Take it, Davi. Hey, this is Davi Barker, and I'm a thousand miles away from Michael, but we sound like we're in the same room. We sure do, Davi. So, Davi, please tell the nice people more about Fiend Phone. Fiend Phone is free, open-source software that opens up a global world of possibilities for collaborative, high-quality remote voice media production, and I'm digging it. People can try the Windows beta version of FiendPhone right now at FiendPhone.com. But we're also raising money to vastly improve FiendPhone and vastly improve independent talk media worldwide. So go to FiendPhone.com to help out. Who will build the audio roads? We will, with your help. That's FiendPhone.com. F-E-E-N-P-H-O-N-E.com. Foxtrot, Echo, Echo, November, Phone.com. FiendPhone. I never knew remote audio could be this good. This is James Smith. 
formerly of WASP News, now an anarchist. And I want to introduce you to Brian Sovereign, former agent of... I have little time. You need to know what's going on. The government is lying to you. Corporations are lying to you. Even is lying to you. They're trying to centralize everything. Trust yourselves. Your computer is your only country. Coexist and learn all that you can. Hack the planet! Hack It is time for Hacksec, and we've got a doozy. That's right, where we talk about hackers and security issues, because hackers are heroes in this realm, (laughs) on Sovereign Tech anyway. And, uh, but boy, this is, uh, these are not heroic acts uh, that were committed uh, in the story I'm about to share with you. And this is from Ars Technica, uh, intercepted. WhatsApp messages led to Belgian terror arrests. And I'm going to read a little bit here and then we're going to talk about it. Um, End to end encryption gaps in WhatsApp message metadata may have left alleged jihadis exposed. The FBI has been lobbying hard to get unfettered access to the messages passed by encrypted messaging services, but it apparently didn't need that level of access to WhatsApp message uh, messages sent between members of an alleged uh, Chechen uh, jihadist group operating in Belgium. According to a report by Bloomberg, a pair of men were arrested and warrants were issued for three others uh, for allegedly preparing for a terrorist attack in Belgium. The arrests followed raids in which 16 people were detained, which Belgian law enforcement officials said was the result of, quote, working with U.S. authorities to monitor suspects communications on WhatsApp Inc.'s messaging service, end quote, Bloomberg's Gaspar Sebag uh, reported. The BBC reports that the men tied to the al-Nusra front in Syria and the Islamic caucus emirate, uh, one man detained and had recently returned to Belgium, wounded in combat in Syria while fighting with al-Nusra. There were two groups raided, one in Ostend on Belgium's coast and the other inland at Lovien. The Lovien group, uh, or Lovain, uh, was said to be plotting a terrorist attack in Belgium. BBC also cited Belgian officials as saying WhatsApp messages intercepted by the U.S. government were used to trace the group. Ars Technica reached out to WhatsApp and to Facebook, which completed its acquisition of WhatsApp in October. A spokesperson from Facebook declined to comment on the matter. WhatsApp began providing end-to-end encryption of its messages last November with the incorporation of security researcher Moxie Marlinspike's Whisper Systems Encryption Protocol, TechSecure. In theory, if TechSecure were in use by the alleged terrorists, the content of their messages would have been very difficult to read. The TechSecure protocol continuously changes pairs of encryption keys with each new message, but it's uncertain that the messages were encrypted, particularly since end-to-end encryption is not supported by the Apple iOS version of WhatsApp, and group messages and images aren't supported by WhatsApp uh, for Android yet. Even if some of the messages uh, re- remained protected by encryption, it's possible that the FBI or NSA gathered metadata at the server for the messages. That metadata could have been used to establish the connections between the suspects and the wounded jihadi, which would have allowed the U.S. agencies or Belgian law enforcement to do more targeted surveillance. In an article in 
in an article in German magazine CT, editor Fabian A. Schurzel dove into the encryption scheme in WhatsApp and contended that it did not vary the key used to encrypt information in transit. Instead, it used a key derived from the user's password and encryption code based on the RC4 algorithm for both inbound and outbound communication. The insinuation was that intercepted and collected messages could theoretically be broken much more easily since the key seeds could be more easily found because it reduced the number of possible keys. But in a response to the article posted to Reddit, Moxie Marlinspike said, this article should be retitled Breaking News WhatsApp End-to-End Deployment Process Exactly as Advertised. We announced a partnership not a finished deployment. In the blog post announcing that partnership, we publicly outlined the WhatsApp end-to-end deployment process, and it describes exactly what has been discovered here. As I said in the blog post, deploying across this many users, hundreds of millions, and this many platforms, seven of which they have only checked two, takes time and is being done incrementally. I also point out that we will be surfacing information in the UI once that is complete. And that's the end of the story there. Um, so what do we get from all this? Well, first off, <laughs> okay, these, these quote unquote, uh, jihadists or terrorists or whatever, uh, were not, not very bright. Okay. <laughs> I mean, if you're using like that, that really should have been plain as, you know, we're not going to use WhatsApp, uh, to, you know, to send any kind of information that that's, uh, important. So, that's that's strike one in the whole matter. Uh, strike two is that okay? WhatsApp is now using Moxie Merlin Spike, uh, you know his his encryption uh, protocol, but it didn't get fully implemented yet. So that's that's something to consider. But also, you know, I we mentioned that all things fail at scale. Uh, you know, as I as I claim, and this shows that kind of that fact that even Moxie is saying, look. We're talking about rolling this out to hundreds of millions of people. You know, you can't expect it to be up and running already and working. But I would wonder if it could even, you know, really do that well, uh, you know, based on because I mean, now they're talking about like group messaging and all that stuff. Uh, you know, it really shows of, of how difficult it is to, you know, lay out things at scale. Maybe eventually it'll be, it'll be perfectly fine because, I mean, you know, 100 million people could use tech secure and one would assume that it's good. Um, so, but then the question gets raised is that did Facebook not fully implement the end to end encryption in WhatsApp on purpose? Will they ever implement it? That's a big question. But it actually goes a lot deeper than that. And something I've talked about, and that's been a bit of a mystery to myself and Sovereign Tech listeners, is that why. Is Facebook, you know, we talked about last week how Facebook now lets you communicate with PGP. Uh, you know, they'll send you emails in PGP. They let you upload your PGP key uh, to, you know, to their website so that people can very easily and efficiently download it so that they can communicate with you off of Facebook using PGP. Uh, we talked about that. We talked about how they're the first, you know, really big company to have its own tour site which they have. Um, we talked about, you know, now, and we're talking about again, how WhatsApp, which is owned by Facebook, uh, you know, implemented, you know, this, this great or tried to implement anyway, or started to implement this great end to end encryption, you know, all these different, you know, disparate aspects. And also I've theorized for a long time now that eventually, uh, Facebook is going to accept Bitcoin as a money transfer as a, you know, as a payment system. I still think that that's going to happen. We've talked about all these things and it's just like 
you know, why is Facebook doing this? Facebook does, is not interested in your privacy. Why are they doing all these great, quote unquote, great motions into giving you privacy, you know, and, and, and security and encryption, all this. And so we've always said on Sovereign Tech, well, it's some kind of honeypot. Okay, that that that's that's got to be it, you know, but even that we thought was, you know, or, you know, at least I thought was, eh, I don't know, that, that doesn't make sense. But now it all makes sense because whether or not the end to end encryption was solid in WhatsApp, what they could have done and what this article described is that they could have just used the metadata to track, you know, these Syrian, you know, jihadists or rebels, you know, I guess it all depends on what side you're looking at them. And that's the key. That's it right there. That's the whole thing is that Facebook wants to lure people into using their service and lure them into thinking that what they're doing is very, it's encrypted. And maybe it is, maybe it's very well encrypted, but then they're going to use the metadata from all their various apps. And that will give them all the information they need to be able to track you and maybe even know what you're doing. You know, they might not be able to necessarily know what you're saying per se, but they may have information that's far more important. So this is the, I think this is the reality. This is what it's all about. This is why Facebook has a Tor site. This is why Facebook, uh, you know, is implementing end to end encryption in WhatsApp. This is why Facebook is, you know, wanting to interact, uh, with PGP and all that. It's all a ruse. It's all a ploy. It's all, it's the angler fish dangling its light in front of you. Hey, it's safe here in the depths of the ocean. But then in reality, it's just waiting to gobble you up by its collection of metadata that it can cross reference across its platforms, you know, across Facebook's multiple platforms. So this is what's going on. It's insidious. I mean, could I be wrong? Yeah, I could be wrong, but I don't think so. I think this is this is what's going on. It's all about Facebook having this incredible collection of metadata. Now, the difference between data and metadata, if you don't if you don't know, metadata is, uh, you know, data is what you actually send. Like if you're sending an encrypted text message or something uh, or an encrypted message that what that message says is the actual data. Even the encrypted, you know, gobbledygook is that that's that's data. The metadata is when was it sent? Where was it sent from? What's the IP address? Blah, blah, blah. You know, all that, that, that other information, that's the metadata. And that's, that's the censure. And something I talked about over two years ago was that the U S government is now using drones. They have programmed drones to follow suspects and people and to track events based upon metadata. Okay. And you combine that with something like these, you know, like these, these flying black boxes that the FBI has, okay, where they are mimicking cell phone towers and receiving data. I mean, you've got a terrible recipe for a disaster and a recipe for, you know, a serious surveillance state, you know, big brother operations in the fact that you've got, you know, your metadata, you think everything's fine. You think, oh, this is encrypted. I'm gold. This is using Moxie stuff and Moxie's great. And he is, okay. But, you know, I'm doing all this, but it's the metadata. That's what it's all about. And there's been recent, I think, talks. There's some others 
Um, you know, I've, I've talked about them briefly on Sovereign Tech, I think, in the past. There's some others that are trying to kind of hide that metadata and all that. Um, but that's what this is really all about. And, you know, I think the only real solution is often, like I say, don't rely on mobile devices. Start weaning off of the mobile devices. Okay. And, you know, use your, your laptop has a whole lot of options. There's a lot of ways, perhaps, you know, to where there's not so much metadata being sent up like there is from your, you know, that box of sensors in your pocket known as a, uh, known as a smartphone or even a tablet, maybe. Uh, this is serious. And I think it should bring pause to your social media habits and, you know, your, your overall communication habits uh, in general. So, but that's, that's it. We've, in my opinion, we figured it out. Why is Facebook using all this great technology? It's because they want to be a honeypot for everyone's metadata. I'll be back with more. Babylon 5 ended a great war and united a hundred alien races in peace. Danger didn't die. It just went underground with new heroes and new evils to carry the torch. We need to make sure they all understand we will not be intimidated. What is wrong with you people? We have to set him against himself. It's an entire new season of Babylon 5 with all new episodes. Babylon 5 is available for download on your favorite torrent site. See it now to experience the greatest show in television history. Babylon 5. Agent Sovereign, Skylab C is in a polar orbit of the Earth. Computer, it's not Agent anymore. We don't work for them. Natalia, Elizabeth, Jane, and I, and anyone else that wants to join us, we're rogue now. We have to put an end to domination. Agent Sovereign, come join us. Yeah, join us. Don't be a wanker. <laughs> well, there's no reason not to have fun in the process. I'm coming, ladies. Oh, yeah, yeah, anarchy, anarchy. The climax. It is time for the climax, where I talk about whatever the hell I want to talk about. Uh, it could be a movie, it could be a TV show, it could be a product, uh, it could be a topic. Hell, I've done poetry. I mean, there's, there's a million things that I could talk about uh, for the climax. It's the part of the show where there's no rules and I can just, you know, I don't feel uh, compelled to have to talk about science or technology at that. Um, and this week I've got a movie I want to talk about. And it's the movie that I mentioned earlier in the show, Jurassic World. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm only going to give one spoiler alert. Uh, I despise <laughs> the fact that that there's people that I mean, I don't despise them. I just despise the fact that there's people that, that just don't like spoilers. Um, I think, you know, or people that I don't despise the fact that you don't like spoilers. I get annoyed. I say this often. I get annoyed that like people get really mad about it. Like, I, I mean, they get they get downright vicious about the fact that you spoiled a movie for them or something. And it's like, well, what you, you know, we're in this, we're in the, the, uh, the information age, you know, there's communication everywhere uh, and you're going to hold me hostage to not talk about what I just saw. Uh, you know, I, 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 boy, I find that annoying. So anyway, I think, you know, th those kind of people that are really, really like, like, you know, angry about it are, uh, they're, they're terrorists. <laughs> I mean, they're holding the world hostage. So spoiler alert, I may bring up plot points, uh, in what I'm about to talk about. But I also want to say that I will actually, this is kind of a first, I will be doing this concurrently with the release of a blog post at the Zog blog at zog.ninja, uh, talking about, you know, doing a review of, uh, Jurassic world as well. 
So you'll have me talking here. And then if you want to go in a little bit deeper, you know, and read more about it or share it, uh, you can actually, you know, check it out at the Zog blog at Z-O-G dot Ninja. So Jurassic World, I mean, in short, I loved it. I I thought it was it was fantastic Uh, for a Jurassic Park film. I'm not saying it's like Citizen Kane or something, (laughs) you know, like it's like it's Grand Illusions, you know, or it's this, this this. you know, big film. Uh, but for a Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park film, I thought it was fantastic. In fact, uh, I think it's probably next to the original, next to the first one that came out in 93. Uh, it's the best one, uh, in my opinion. It's, it's actually, and I, I really loved Jurassic Park 3. Uh, and it's better than that. Uh, there's, you know, there's more dinosaurs, uh, you know, and little, little more humans than I would have cared for, but. <laughs> Uh, but it was really good. So Jurassic World, it, you know, the whole, the whole plot line effectively is that, uh, there is this, you know, they're back on Isla Nublar, which is, uh, uh, where the first film takes place. The, the middle two films took place on Isla Sona or Sorna. And this one is, is on the original Island. That's cool in and of itself. But now, you know, now Jurassic Park, it's not just a park, you know, it's this huge, like almost Island wide, uh, theme park. Okay, that people go to, you know, it's a resort, there's hotel, you know, there's all this great stuff. So, so, uh, you know, John Hammonds, the the original creator in the movie of Jurassic Park, his dream has really come true. Uh, And it's beautiful, like it's stunning. Uh, You know, there's the the director, uh, Chris, or, or I'm sorry, Colin Trevorrow, that's his name, Colin Trevorrow. He, he said that this film was largely, uh, you know, about, uh, it was a, a commentary on humanity's you know um terrible greed and uh and sense of excess or desire for excess and all this stuff uh and you know i can kind of see that and and certainly the the jurassic world as in the park not the movie um definitely showed off a lot of excess uh that's for sure you know but i i thought it was cool seeing it you know seeing all that wonderful you know kind of technology laid out in a really cool way uh and and seeing like the main complex uh, in the building and everything, or, you know, in, in the movie, all of that looked really, really cool. Like there's a big pyramid in the middle of the Island. All that was, I thought it was awesome. Um, you know, but the, the movie was, was largely great. And so it's all about this Indominus Rex, which is this genetically engineered. It's kind of this hybrid between, uh, the T-Rex and Velociraptors. So it's a very smart, uh, you know, T-Rex of that size. And it, it gets loose, you know, cause it's very smart and it has these other abilities that it got from splicing of other genes from other creatures. And, uh, you know, the whole movie is just about trying to put an end to this Indominus Rex. Uh, the first 45 minutes felt very much to me like the first 40 or, you know, the, yeah, the first 45 minutes of the original film, which was my favorite in the original Jurassic Park. What I loved was seeing the dinosaurs doing their thing as dinosaurs and kind of humans are reactions to those things. Uh, and you got that in this movie. So that really, that I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, because I mean, that's what I want. I don't really give a shit about the humans. I, I want to see uh, more, you know, more dinosaurs. So the, there's kind of a subplot through all the thing throughout the whole thing, which actually sort of becomes, you know, a, a major part of the plot towards the end of the film in that the InGen, which is the company that, that originally created all these dinosaurs, um, they wanted to, they, they wanted to weaponize uh, these dinosaurs, particularly the Velociraptors. And of course, Chris Pratt, the actor who plays, he plays a, a, a character, Oliver, Oliver Grady, I think his name is uh, in, in the movie or Owen Grady. It's Owen Grady. 
you know, he trains, he's like this ex Navy guy. And so he's training these velociraptors like they're dolphins. And so that sort of that that subplot becomes the thrust of the film to where this this other guy played by uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, he does a great job. Uh, haven't really seen him in much since Men in Black. But, uh, you know, he talked about or, you know, they want to they want to weaponize these dinosaurs. They're going to make other kind of hybrids, sort of like Indominus Rex uh, that, you know, could really do wild things on the battlefield and all this, you know, all this bullshit. Um, and that was kind of that was interesting to me to see that. Because and this is where, you know, maybe people will find my review kind of interesting. This is not a new idea. There were people, you know, I was unfortunately, uh, you know, I was originally I was raised Jewish and then, you know, my parents converted. I became uh, or I was forced to become a Christian. uh, And thankfully, I'm an atheist now. But (laughs) but I was forced to be Christian. And I remember getting taught. Uh, I was a Seventh-day Adventist in particular, and there were some uh, some guys who, you know, and I don't remember who all started this, started this, if it was like Dr. Henry Morris or some others, but they actually talked about the idea that dinosaurs, why, like, the question is, okay, how come there aren't dinosaurs anymore? If the Earth, because according to Christianity, or a lot of Christianity, not all, but a lot of Christianity, the Earth is 6,000 years old. What happened to the dinosaurs? Why did they disappear? Now, first of all, of course, there are dinosaurs mentioned in Job 40, uh, chapter 40, 41. Um, that's, you know, it talks about the behemoth with the tail like a cedar tree and all that. It's not a hippopotamus. It has a tail like a cedar tree. A hippopotamus does not have a tail like a cedar tree. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so what, you know, where, where did the dinosaurs go? What happened to them? Like, and so the, the easy answer is, is that they all died in the flood. Okay, of course, some people want to make the easy answer. Well, they're all trickery by Satan. Those fossils aren't real. But if one takes them as real, which is a very smart thing to do. (laughs) Okay, uh, the idea is that they all got wiped out in the flood. Why did they get wiped out in the flood? Why weren't they put onto the ark? Well, the theory went that I had heard from some people in Christian circles was that, you know, the antediluvian world, which is the name of the world before the flood was very advanced, like highly advanced, and that they actually that that, you know, because it was such a sinful world, that's why, you know, God did a flood to wipe everybody out. They actually did genetic engineering in that dinosaurs themselves were genetically engineered war machines. And, you know, some people say, well, look at the stegosaurus, look at the triceratops. All these things would seem to be designed, you know, for uh, for people to, you know, attack. And so it's interesting because that theory usually gets laughed off. But then in the movie Jurassic World. Here you have Vincent D'Onofrio's character saying, you know, these velociraptors, they're going to be able to go into caves like drones can't operate. Like, in fact, that was kind of cool is that in the movie, they mentioned that that drones are actually, you know, kind of terrible at what they do. Uh, They run out of power. They can't go into caves. There's all these other, you know, different things, though. I'm sure that'll change in the future. Um, But the guy was making the case that, you know, these dinosaurs can be the ultimate war weapons, uh, you know, ultimate war machines. And so it's interesting that somehow people accept this because the reviews largely, not just mine, but the reviews for Jurassic World are like, oh, this is fantastic. You know, this is what just a fun film is really good, you know, and nobody's necessarily saying things are outlandish in it. Um, but that's the funny thing is that, oh, it's crazy that the idea like I remember just hearing it for so long because I tell people about this sometimes. OK, this theory that, you know, I mean, even though I'm an atheist, I would tell them, well, you know, Christians say that maybe, uh, you know, dinosaurs were these genetically engineered uh, war machines. 
And I just remember the looks on people's faces like, oh, that that's nuts. That, that, that And they weren't saying it's nuts because of the time that it happened. They're saying that, that's, that the idea in and of itself is crazy. But then here you have in this movie, in this summer blockbuster, breaking, you know, breaking records, doing, you know, doing great and getting great reviews largely. Uh, it's accepted as, oh, of course. Well, that makes total sense. You'd want to send velociraptors to go find, uh, you know, quote unquote, terrorists in caves or whatever. So as usual, I get annoyed that it's not until suddenly it becomes socially acceptable that until an idea becomes socially acceptable, until then, uh, it's just considered insane. But, you know, I mean, that, that's, that, that, that's kind of the only, like, the real major insight that I can bring into that film. Uh, as far as like something that you might not hear anywhere else, is that the idea of dinosaurs being uh, war machines is not new. In fact, it's quite old. In fact, it might be very old before even necessarily the idea of genetic engineering uh, was there. Because like in the book of Genesis, there's a point um, where uh, uh, not not Isaac, uh, uh, Jacob, I, I believe it's Jacob, where he tricks because the name Jacob means trickster. Uh, where Jacob in the book of Genesis, okay, son of Isaac and Isaac, son of Abraham, blah, blah. He actually, he, he create, he, he tricks his, uh, his soon to be father-in-law, I believe into giving him goats that aren't spotted and there aren't, or he, he tricks him into saying, look, I'll take all the goats that are spotted. You take the goats that aren't spotted. Okay. And the, what, what happens is, is that he somehow feeds the goats you know, because there aren't many spotted goats, of course, his his future father-in-law thinks, oh, well, that's fine and dandy. Okay, fine. You take the ones that are spotted. He somehow puts something in the water of the goats that causes the other goats to be spotted. Now, look, I'm not saying the story, the story is probably all bullshit. Okay. But my point being is that the Bible, to some degree, does describe engineering animals to have different features than what they originally had. Okay, because then Jacob ends up with all, you know, with 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 like 90 percent of the herd. Okay, you know, or the, these goats or whatever animals that that ended up all being spotted. Um, because he fed them this, you know, whatever, whatever he put in the water uh, to do that. So none of these are really new ideas, but they were considered my. But again, my main concern is that they were considered ridiculous up until this movie comes out. And that's annoying. So anyway, I'm not giving any credibility to that kind of kind of shit. Um, I don't think that that any of that's probably really true at all. Um, but I'm just saying that it's out there. Uh, and yeah, there it is. So as far as the movie uh, in general, uh, it had a, paid a lot of homage to uh, to the the original to the other movies. Um, the fact that some people had concerns about the fact it's like, holy shit, it's like, is there enough product placement for Mercedes? Well, I think that that actually fit kind of like how I like the fact that Pizza Hut was all over the place in TMNT uh, Mercedes being on the, at the park like it was like Mercedes was used in The Lost World from 1997, which is a sequel to the original movie. Um, I thought that that was great because it connected the two films in a very real way. So, yes, it's product placement, but I thought it worked. You know, it was like it was it was one that was acceptable and, and, and it fit just like Pizza Hut fits in a Ninja Turtles movie, because if you wanted any Ninja Turtles merchandise in the 90s, you went to fucking Pizza Hut. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so but there were certainly some product placements that were a little, you know, over the top, like margaritas and Brookstone. You'd see all these things and it just it looked ridiculous. Um, there is a an end battle. Uh, that I thought that was really fantastic. There's definitely the, the, the kind of the, I think the real message that was there and it was not human excess, but that nature, 
brings on equilibrium because there's a point where like all a bunch of different dinosaurs are taking on Indominus Rex. And they are the ones, you know, here's the cincher. They are the ones that end up, you know, kind of winning the day. And when they do that, that I really felt like that was just the message that, you know, because these were like these pre-existing species, not these new hybrid species, that nature will, if it if there's something unnatural, it's going to work it out. It's going to put a stop to it somehow. Uh, so I thought that that was pretty cool. Anyway, great movie overall. Go grab it. And of course, the full review will be at zog.ninja. Go to the Zog blog. Uh, it'll be up pretty much when you hear this. Uh, anyway, donate to the show. Donate options are zog.ninja as well. Uh, go to the support us tab. There's plenty of ways to donate to the show if you enjoy what we're doing here. Carpe Lucem, everybody. I'll see you on the other side. You just experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com, that's S-O-V-R-Y-N-Tech.com, and connect with us there. Find links from today's show and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to the Evolution. Evolution.